Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, The Fall of Game of Thrones and Real History, June 2022, and my name is Bell Avis. The power of historical fiction, for bad and for good, can be immense in shaping consciousness of the past. Antony Beaver I can't read historical fiction because I find the real thing so much more interesting. Historian Antonia Fraser As much as I love historical fiction, my problem with historical fiction is, is that you always know what's going to happen. George R. R. Martin TV shows were once cultural events in the United States. For example, in the 1950s, I Love Lucy garnered 14 million households watching the show out of 40 million every single night it aired. Over a third of American TV sets were tuned to the final episode of Roots, the scene of Ben Vereen's unforgettable Chicken George, where he learns of his freedom, and this taking place in the late 1970s. And I am old enough to remember a Who Shot JR phenomenon in which a nighttime soap opera called Dallas had its uber villain oil man shot in one of the season finales by who exactly? Given the odious nature of J.R. Ewing, there were more than a few suspects. But part of this era was the lack of streaming. The who shot J.R. question spanned the months between the end of one season and the beginning of others. The question graced the cover of Time magazine when that magazine was as much a cultural touchstone as a popular TV show. Then there were watch parties and gambling, and a big part of this was the lack of binging. People had to wait a week or three months to learn the twist of plots or the fate of characters. I've always felt like something is lost with binging. Often looking forward to something is almost as good as the event itself. The speculation of the next thing, the savoring of the possibilities. I know that this year, Amazon Prime is not providing the entire season of its hit, The Boys, but rather staggering the episodes. They have learned a bit of history and psychology as well. Game of Thrones, though not on the scale of a Roots or Dallas, or the final MASH episode, again in 1983, that episode garnered over a third of all TV sets tuned to CBS. But Game of Thrones was as close to a cultural moment as I have seen in the past few years in terms of non-Super Bowl TV. It was the proverbial water cooler show and the episode in which the Dornish Prince, the Red Viper, fought the evil Gregor Clegane, the Mountain, the actor was well over 6 foot 6 inches tall and well north of 320 pounds, was touted as the Game of Thrones Ollie versus Frasier. And I love Game of Thrones, not for its zombies, dragons, and sorcery, but because it felt like watching history. And more than that, HBO funded it, and I mean funded it. One of Blackwater Bay's battles felt like hundreds of ships were involved. And I contrast this with an earlier HBO show called Rome, which aired around 2005. And unlike Thrones, this was not a fantasy, but based on real people like Julius Caesar, Pompey the Great, Mark Antony, and Octavian. Yet in the climactic Battle of Pharsalus in which Caesar destroys Pompey's army, they clearly bailed on the budget. Caesar walks out of his tent. They then show a few close-ups of men fighting, 
Then Caesar re-enters his tent, noting that he had won. I contrast this with Blackwater Bay, the Battle of the Bastards, or Hardhome from Thrones. Although the latest of those is fought against zombies, it still felt more real, like two armies clashing, than the frugality exhibited in Rome. But it was more than the type of grandeur one sees in movies such as Spartacus, Lords of Arabia, or Patton. George R. R. Martin's characters felt fully fleshed. They thought, plotted, feared, lusted, drank, despised, and strove, just like historical figures. I was thinking about this as I read George R. R. Martin's latest, well, distraction from the work fans genuinely crave. Martin famously finished the fifth book, Dance of the Dragons, of his seven-book series, A Song of Ice and Fire, in 2011. Unlike Stieg Larsson with his Girl with a Dragon Tattoo series, Martin is very much alive 11 years later and active today. Yet, no Winds of Winter, the sixth book, and as for that seventh book, that elusive seventh book of the series, it isn't easy to imagine the portly and now septuagenarian Martin has another product decade in him, even if he finishes that sixth book, The Winds of Winter. Yet, he managed to stick in many other projects during the last decade. One of those, his book, coming out on HBO, is a series called House of the Dragon, based on Martin's blood and fire. But this new book is a prequel to the Game of Thrones series. Though there is some original material here, we already know things. This is always the problem with prequels. For example, we know the Targaryen dynasty will survive because we've seen thrones. We also know that the dragons will die off because we've seen thrones. What is missing from the books can be summarized in a simple word, humanity. In some regards, the zombies from the original series exhibit more depth than the characters in Blood and Fire. However, aside from the Aegon the Conqueror, a knockoff of the real-world William of Normandy, who conquered England in 1066 CE, and a character named Jaehaerys, all characters in Blood and Fire are basically grasping idiots. They are all passion, lust, bloodthirstiness, and ambitious. None of the characters in the book's second half, well, actually think or act as fully-fleshed humans would. One of the great differentiators for Martin's original books, and the one that makes him so distinct from so many other fantasies and historical fiction writers. In a word, Martin's characters feel real, in a way that so many other fantasy or fictional historian writers cannot seem to capture. One of the notable aspects of the original Game of Thrones was not just Peter Dinklage's fantastic performance as Tyrion Lannister, but what Tyrion was, the smartest guy in the room. And that was not easy in early thrones. Tyrion had to compete with other schemers, such as his sister Cersei, Lord Peter Baelish, and most of all, his father Tywin. One of my favorite lines comes from when Tyrion's sister Cersei comments on his, quote, plots and schemes, unquote, to which Tyrion Riley notes, those are the same thing. Gold. At another point, Tyrion fools not one but three other schemers with his cleverness. It was virtuoso writing in which three very intelligent plotters are fooled by an even smarter one. And even the bloodthirsty types in early thrones, such as Balin Greyjoy, wreak havoc from the point of cleverness. 
He invades his enemy's territories only after the enemy has taken his army to the far south. Yet once the writers had gone beyond Martin's source material in the last two seasons, the intelligence is gone in the Game of Thrones TV series. Even Tyrion makes wrong after wrong decisions in these later seasons. It is at the moment when one realizes that characters are making decisions based not on their character development to that point, or on decisions resident in the makeup of a human being, but rather on the needs of the plot. In those later seasons, Tyrion believes, for example, his treacherous sister against all reason and all of her years of betrayal. Why would he do that? Because the plot needs him to. Of course, the characters in the plot were written by the same guy. The writer is sort of the god king of any piece of literature, calling all of the shots, making all of the decisions, deciding who lives or dies in a way that real history does not allow. But in the earlier seasons, it almost felt as if Martin had written his characters and only then wove what would happen based on the decisions he thought they would make. And this is very historical. One of the main characters of the first season, and arguably the most honorable, Ned Stark, ends up being executed for treason, mainly because he was trying to help the wrong character. This is historical. Pliny the Elder, among many vocations a historian, died during the eruption of Vesuvius that covered Pompeii by bringing in a ship to try to rescue a friend. He had once written, Fortune favors the bold, but not in this case. Had he stayed put, he would have lived another day. And after his great victory at Agincourt, Henry V, King of England, died just seven years later, leaving a very young son behind and an unconquered France in his wake. This minority and later incompetence of the very same son, Henry VI, led to the Wars of the Roses, one of the historical touch points for the Game of Thrones. The Rose Wars were not driven by plot, but rather by the ambitions and frailties of genuine people. This is the thing missing from most fictional plots and was totally at home in the early seasons of Game of Thrones. And something else that the early seasons of Game of Thrones got right, and the latter ones missed, is whether successful or not, people tend to hew toward their natures in all their complexities, and that is illustrated within the historical record. After eight years of perseverance in a war in which he was always outmanned, always out-resourced, yet emerged victorious, it would make sense that George Washington would be the guy to preside over the Constitutional Congress, the person who would be the nation's first president and who would do an incredible job at that role. After rising to leadership of the incarnation and forging his people into a fighting force, it would make sense that Pachacuti would take this force on a series of brilliant conquests and forge an empire of millions in South America. In the Game of Thrones show, it would make sense that the character of Jaime Lannister would free his brother Tyrion from a death sentence because he was always his protector, and it would cause further sense that Tyrion would then find his father for a final reckoning. The latter had tormented him his entire life, and so when Tyrion murdered him, it was not to advance the plot, but something coming from the character and the relationship of the two men. The fact it happened on the privy was, well, frankly, another brilliant Martin touch, and, well, and maybe not, if 
Tywin had been clothed in arm, it might have been Tyrion who died. Yet after the historical nature was omitted in later seasons, the narrative fell apart as plot movement kept trumping character. It made no sense that Tyrion would later trust his sister, or that a key character on the second to last episode, who had been the one character who had consistently helped the average person, the peasants, the slaves on the show, would then turn vengeful and put an entire city, peasants and slaves all, to the torch. It only made sense if said character needed to do this because the plot commanded it. What Martin did earlier is construct characters with certain natures, and then those natures drove the events. What happened the last two seasons was that without Martin's source material, amateurs took over and history was forgotten. It was like playing Risk with loaded dice. So one of the best TV shows of all time whimpered to the end, but there are still two unfinished books, and that is why there is also such a great demand for them to be completed. This is not to say that favorite characters will survive or that nobility will win out, rather that the nature of the characters and the vagaries of history retake the narrative, just like real life. In the 20th century, some of the most decent figures to have ever lived, from Mohandas K. Gandhi to Martin Luther King Jr. to John Lennon, were all murdered. Meanwhile, Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, and, well, right now our count is two brutal, vicious North Korean Kims have all died in their beds. The justice in history is that of which we make. So of those unfinished books and Martin's obvious procrastinations, what do fans deserve from their artists? In the mid-1990s, after winning three consecutive championships, arguably the greatest basketball player who ever lived left the sport to play baseball. Then, after not getting a whiff of the majors, Jordan returned to basketball to then simply reel off another three championships. Over eight years, Jordan's Bulls won the title every year that he was there. But he desired the hardwood more than the diamond. Now, basketball missed him. But the hue and cry was not as loud as that for Martin. Even today, the current most outstanding women's tennis player, the greatest of all time is 1S Williams, but the greatest women's tennis player of our day is named Ashley Barty, an Australian who left the sport six months ago in her prime after winning her home country's Grand Slam tournament at the rifled age of 26. Again, Disappointment for tennis fans, including myself? Sure. But hey, she was quickly replaced by 21-year-old phenom Iga Swiatek atop the ratings. And we have even more phenomer, I'm not sure what the word would be, 18-year-old Coco Goff, who, unlike the Polish Iga, hails from the U.S. of A. America, indeed. Yet the real reason we never completely missed Jordan is that we had Hakeem, Scotty, Carl, and John when Jordan was away. I already noted that Barty's absence is barely noted because of the other players, but there is simply no other Games of Thrones type player quite like Martin. Some, like Patrick Rothfuss, another writer's blocked writer, exists, but nothing quite like this. We also have several fine historical fiction writers. But what Martin did... And better than anyone was twofold. Now first, granted he added aspects of the fantasy genre to very historically grounded characters. Yes, as I had mentioned earlier, we have our dragons and our zombies. But the actual key, 
his real inspiration missing from really almost even from a lot of historical fiction is he filled out his characters in the hands of a Philippa Gregory Henry VII is a callow idiot under his mother's thumb. Nothing at all like the real Henry VII, founder of the incredible Tudor dynasty. And Henry VIII, a brutal, bloodthirsty, lustful drunkard. Hilary Mantle's series about Cromwell, Wolf Hall, gets pretty close. But her books are not an ensemble, but just a one-person band. And even as good as Hilary Mantle is... Cromwell comes off as St. Cromwell in this one, and so much smarter than everybody else that when he comes to his inevitable sticky end, we're all sitting there going, Boy, but wait a minute, he was so smart for really boy, two and three quarters books. Can't he think his way out of this one? It seemed a little odd. Martin provides comparisons in a series of interviews. As noted above, the series is the real-life War of the Roses. I mean, really, that's what Game of Thrones is. The two greatest houses vying in the real-life War of the Roses were called York and Lancaster. The two greatest houses in Game of Thrones are Stark and Lannister. Even the map of the fictional Westeros looks a whole lot like the island of Britain, and there is even a Hadrian's Wall in the north, though they call it just the Wall. Tywin Lannister is like Edward I. Tyrion, seemingly maybe like Richard III. Cersei Lannister is Queen Isabella who is rumored to have murdered her husband, Edward II. Or Cersei could be Margaret of Anjou, a key player in the War of the Roses. And even Cersei's Walk of Shame, one of the more difficult scenes to watch in the series, reflects the real-life Jane Shaw's Walk of Shame in the War of the Roses. And on, and on, and on. And by the way, these comparisons aren't even mine. Martin makes them in videos. During the game's success, Many other streamers and even the big three networks tried their hands at a Game of Thrones type success. We had a Camelot. We had a Beowulf. We even had a a Wizard of Oz show that tried to turn the Wizard of Oz series into a Game of Thrones type um, uh, show with the wrinkle that they brought in somebody from our era who had somehow traveled back in time or interdimensional, maybe kind of a multiverse thing. Who knows? None of them were successful. Even in the case of Beowulf, because of the lack of depth of their characters. Even shows based on real-life events, such as The White Queen, the story of Elizabeth Woodville and her husband, King Edward IV, both key players in The War of the Roses, were terrible because there was no depth in the latter case. Not a, not a flesh-and-blood character. Watching The White Queen, I kept feeling like it was one of those, those teen CW shows, or, and again, my age... 90210, only our heartthrobs are in armor instead of beachwear. In a recent video, one of my favorite YouTubers, the critical drinker, in his patented tipsy Scottish brogue, lamented and nearly begged Martin to return to finish the books. In the drinker's eyes, Martin's fans gave him wealth and privilege, and he owed it back to them to finish the things. As much as I love the drinker, I do not agree with that contention. If Shakespeare decided to get halfway through Hamlet and stopped writing to instead pen body songs about Queen Elizabeth I, well, that would have been his right. Now, if I commissioned Martin to finish the Song of Ice and Fire, that would be different if he was contractually obligated to do so by a certain deadline. But I do not know his publishing contracts. 
and fans have a choice to patronize certain writers, as we have done with Martin, and he has the right to give us his talent or seemingly squander it the way Jordan did. As much as us 1990 fans had Hakeem Olajuwon to try to fill in the gaps, come on, did people really want to see Michael Jordan with a basketball or with a baseball bat? I think we all know the truth of it. Remember, he never even got out of double A. The point of this piece is to not lay judgment or even castigate Martin for his choices, but rather praise him for knowing history enough to convert it into exciting ways and hope he does finish his opus eventually. But let's be clear, as close as Game of Thrones feels to real history itself, this is not history itself. As much as I like even more traditional historical fiction writers, such as James Clavell or Colleen McCullough, real history has always been the thing. As we began this podcast, let me again quote historian Antonia Fraser. Quote, I can't read historical fiction because I find the real thing so much more interesting, unquote. And Fraser has the bona fides, having written in both fiction and a whole lot of nonfiction, including my personal favorite, Faith and Treason About the Gunpowder Plot. It's an excellent book, something that you should check out. Now, imagine this tale. An island kingdom that can trace its lineage a thousand years into the past and beyond is beset by another nation boasting of a much larger army led by a tyrannical conqueror who has bested every army he has fought. The only hope for this island nation is its navy to prevent that army from assaulting its shores. And its greatest naval hero, who has already fought and won numerous fleet battles, leads his force against a navy nearly 30% larger than his own. This man's bravery is legendary, even foolhardy. He has lost an eye and an arm in service to his country. He is a very flawed man, being a philanderer, And even though he's an admiral, he gets seasick. But he is also brilliant and beloved by his nation. And in a climactic battle, as his navy comes to grips with the much larger enemy, he places his flagship not in the traditional middle, but in the vanguard. And he wears his admiral's uniform on deck, making himself conspicuous. He is shot through and dies an hour later on the lower decks of his ship. But his navy trained to peak perfection and superbly led, crushes the enemy fleet. This victory immediately means the island nation will be safe, but it also means that it will then become the preeminent naval power for the next 100 years. And this navy uses this power to bring an end to the transportation of slaves by ship, something that had occurred in history for thousands of years before. No fiction writer, not even Martin, could conceive of this tale, but it was all real. I am writing about Britain, Napoleon, and Admiral Horatio Nelson. The history of the academy, of the high and middle schools, the history extolled by much of the media and even corporate America is not this history. Progressives are so named because they wish not to necessarily see society progress, but rather be responsible for what they see as the proper progression of society. And history has been warped, altered, and changed to fit the narrative of that world, particularly America, as an unredeemable place only to be saved by the heroes of the progressive movement. 
they would consider changing the founding date of our nation from 1776 to 1619, or the equation of prebellum southern economies to capitalism. Two economies could rarely be further, farther apart. I am the conservative historian because I wish to preserve the historical record. My podcasts are not some jingoistic propagandist view of history. The United States kept slavery in place for over 80 years. The United States persecuted Native Americans and denigrated German, Irish, and Chinese immigrants throughout our history. And those are just three. There's plenty more. But we also built an idea of life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness that has served as a beacon of freedom and liberty for billions of people. Our capitalist system has lifted hundreds of millions out of poverty. This, too, is all of our history. Martin's characters, at least his best ones, have depth, thought, and nuance. Some are good and honorable. Some are evil. This is life, and this is history. And history provides us a choice of who we will choose to be as a nation and as a person. Thank you for listening to this latest Conservative Historian podcast. Check out all of our podcasts on our Buzzsprout site. As always, thank you for listening. This is Bell Avis.